This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The National Teacher of the Year calls the detention of migrant children at the U.S.-Mexico border abuse and an atrocity, but she says teachers can do something about it. Plus, American cities are gradually getting less segregated, but our teachers say that doesn't necessarily mean schools are. And do you know what your students are doing on their laptop? Like a lot of things in education, it depends on where you teach. Those topics plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them from snowy Kansas City as we take this. We are digging out of a snowstorm. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? Teach social studies at an urban high school. Jason Staliga, what do you teach? I teach chemistry at a suburban high school. And uh, not in Kansas City, joining us from Chicago, where I think they got a little bit less snow than we did. Lynn Osborne-Simmons, how are you doing? What do you teach? Great. I teach science to students with disability at uh, Chicago Public School High School. So Lynn, again, is in Chicago. Greg in Kansas City. Uh, Jason in Kansas City as well. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and also gives you a chance to weigh in if you want. Also, a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week, as well as a review of maybe some things we've talked about on past episodes. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. Well, last year we talked with 2018 National Teacher of the Year Mandy Manning. She teaches English to newly arrived immigrant and refugee students in Spokane, Washington. When she won the Teacher of the Year honor and then went to the White House to accept the award back in May, she handed President Trump a stack of letters from her students as uh, they met each other and she received her award in the Oval Office. She gained some notoriety and attention for that. Since then, Mandy has used her platform as Teacher of the Year to speak out about the rights of immigrant and refugee school children in the United States. And now she's organizing what she calls a teach-in Uh, Set to take place in El Paso, Texas next month, this teach-in, we should say, was originally supposed to happen at a massive migrant detention facility in Tornillo, Texas. That's just outside El Paso. But days before this taping, federal officials actually moved out all the migrant children held at that facility and began dismantling the sprawling encampment. Still, plans for a teach-in do go forward. We have a chance to ask Mandy Manning herself because she joins No Wrong Answers by Skype. Mandy Manning, thank you once again for joining us. Mm, No problem. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'll start with what I just said. Your original idea was to try and actually get inside this facility at Tornillo. Um, You and a group of teacher volunteers uh, didn't teach lessons for 24 hours to the kids inside. But um, as I said, this particular center is apparently now closed or in the process of being cleared out. So uh, does that change your plans? What is the status of of your teaching? 
Um, it, our plans have not changed because there are still 11,400 innocent immigrant children being housed in detention centers or being confined in, in detention centers across the nation. There are detention centers in 11 of our states and over 100 of those detention centers. And so what we have planned now is that we are still going to go to El Paso, Texas. We're going to be at San, San Jacinto um, Square there and we on Sunday, February 17th, uh, which is President's Day weekend. And we are going to hold a, it's not going to be 24 hours. It's probably going to be more around 10 hours. Um, and there's still going to be a teach-in. We're going to have educators from across the nation come and do small mini lessons on different different areas related to child detention. So immigration, um, the history of immigration in our nation, uh, the current situation with child detention, and um, other other things that have impacted this issue um, so that we can bring uh, knowledge and engagement and uh, we seek to shut all of these uh, detention centers down. What was the uh, inspiration for this idea of, of a teach-in? Where did it come from? Have you seen other um, uh, forms of, I guess, protest or demonstration like this in the past in other contexts? Well, the idea originally was uh, I had I had gone down to Alpine, Texas, which is about three hours, three and a half hours outside of um, El Paso. And when I was down there, I was looking at how close I was to Tornillo, and I was about three hours away. And so at the time, I was doing an event down there, and I didn't have my own transportation. So I was thinking, oh, man, do you need to plan better? Because you could have gone and seen what's what's actually happening. Well, so when I realized how close El Paso was and that that's where the airport is to get over to West Texas there, um, I thought, you know what? we really need to do something about about what's happening and who better to do that than educators. We're mandatory reporters of abuse. Um, and this is, it, it's, it's abuse um, of these children who haven't done anything wrong. Um, they've simply just been born outside of the United States. And so I started this idea that I wanted to bring um, the other teachers of the year with me to go down and witness or, or, speak out about this issue. So I um, reached out to some organizers that I know who work closely with indivisible groups in, in uh, my state. Um, and the idea grew. And actually, it was um, one of the planning group members. Uh, her name is Johanna. And she said, well, you should do a teach-in. And I was like, yes, that is such a great idea because it's organized. It specifically focuses on um, us as educators uh, and then this, I, you know, the, the whole um, fact that we teach every single kid who comes into our classroom, we don't make, we, I, I, I can't speak for every educator, but uh, we don't make judgments about our kids. We accept them for who they are. We believe in them. We know that they have endless potential and we teach them. And these are children who are being denied that right to a quality education. They're being denied the right to, um, reach their potential and they're being denied their right to freedom. And so, um, so that's how this sort of, uh, plan, uh, started and then ha has developed and we are still in, um, development of this the specifics yeah. of the day. But we do know that it is happening in El Paso. We know that it is happening at San, um, Jacinto square that there will be, 
uh, at least 50 teachers, likely more teachers, um, that we will have local people telling their stories. We will have some um, other uh, elements of it, uh, but the focus will be on educating the nation about what's happening and engaging them to action to insist that our government shut these facilities down. Uh, well, this is um, an, an issue uh, that strikes very near and dear to, I think, your heart and your work. I mean, you are, um, before you won the award last year, you were a longtime teacher of newly arrived immigrant and refugee children um, in Spokane. Uh, so I just wonder um, how you have felt um, as your time as Teacher of the Year has progressed and, of course, this political issue of uh, of migrant children and, and often unaccompanied children at the southern border has grown in prominence and controversy over the past year. How you have just kind of felt um, as you I, I have obviously felt compelled to to address it in, in your own particular way. Mm-hmm. So, well, first of all, I think that it has it has been made into a political issue, but it's really not. It's a human rights issue. It's an issue that should not be polarized. It shouldn't be a, um, a you know a left and right or a red or blue. Um, it's really a it's a human it's a human issue. And these are children. We're talking about specifically children. We have thousands, eleven thousand four hundred children in detention centers. Um, and so when this when the situation really came to light, and I know that this is not something that has only just cropped up, but in in the iteration that it is now, where uh, kids are, I mean, it's exponentially increased the number of kids that we're holding in detention centers. Since, since I started in May with my um, teacher of the year duties, and then the child separation started to happen, and then Tornillo opened up, um, and then something that was supposed to be, you know, a 30-day quick fix then became, you know, several months, six months it was open. Um, and we still have Homestead in Miami, which is uh, growing larger. Um, so I, I just kept thinking, there's something that we need to be doing here. I just don't know what, because I had written some op-eds about um, how how beautiful our immigrant and refugee students are and how much they their, them and their families bring to our communities and all of that. But it just didn't seem like it was enough. We need to take action. We need to actually do something. And so when you are when you're given a pro- a platform like this one like national teacher of the year i i think it, it it is important to utilize that platform to really help um our nation to be the best that it can be and specifically for children and so and for our humanity i mean we it's really difficult to to comprehend um, what we are doing or why we're doing it. And and really what it comes down to is that we shouldn't be locking up kids. We, sh- we shouldn't be locking up kids. We should be inviting them into our communities. We should be having them sit in our classrooms. We should be allowed the opportunity to teach them because they are children and children have endless potential um, regardless of, of, of any circumstance in their life. And as educators, that's our role. Our role is to ensure that kids believe in themselves, ensure that that they understand that that they have endless potential, and that and that it, you know they can do the things that they want to do. Um, we all have power. We just don't know that we have power. Um, and so we, 
Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been a process and it's been very difficult and it's, um, I'm just very excited to finally be doing something. And my hope is that we will continue to fight until the U S government and the American people stand behind and actually act to close these detention centers. So, um, we are, we are offering opportunity for on our website, which is teachers against child detention.org. We have a lot of information about how you can join. We have a petition that you can sign. Um, we would love for educators in your area to make a short video about what's happening across the nation. We have a fact sheet that can help you with that. Um, we also have a, a plaque, a, like paper that you can fill out and then take a photo with. We have a donation page. We would love for people across the nation to donate to the cause, um, to the campaign. Um, so that we can fund um, this initiative. We ask that you reach out to your legislators because, um, again, this is you know a human rights issue. We hope that people um, across the aisle will be able to work on behalf of these children to um, free them. And, uh, of course, uh, and then another thing that we've been asking people is if you want to do a solidarity teaching in your community where you gather a bunch of teachers, say, at your government building in your community or somewhere else and uh, help just uh, communicate to your local community what's happening. Because in my, um, in my experience, what I've noticed is that local action is the most impactful. It's that whole idea of think globally, act locally, which I hate to use, you know, that, you know, that kind of like, uh, phrase, but, but it's kind of true. We, the, the most change that we make is with our neighbors. And so the more that we can help our neighbors understand what's happening in this human rights issue where we're um, locking children up simply for being born out of the United States, is, uh, it's an important issue that people need to know is happening. And I think if we all work together, we can encourage our uh, government to shut these facilities down. The closing of Tornio proves that it can be done. So the question is, why aren't we closing all of them? Oh, well, that is uh, Mandy Manning. She is the 2018 National Teacher of the Year. And next month on February 17th in El Paso, Texas, she will be hoping to organize and lead a teach-in in that city's San Jacinto Square. Uh, Mandy, we really appreciate you taking the time on this episode. We would actually love to, to if possible, check back in with you after the teach-in um, and see how it went and what lessons you learned. Yeah, that would be great. I'd be happy to come back on. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Most Americans still live in areas that are highly segregated by race. In our country's biggest metropolitan areas, white people generally live in areas surrounded mostly by other white people. Black people generally live in areas surrounded mostly by other black people. But this is changing, if gradually and modestly. A new analysis of U.S. Census Bureau data from the Brookings Institution shows that 
Black-white residential segregation has been declining steadily since 2000. Nearly every major city has seen decreases in neighborhood segregation. In some cases, like Chicago, the decrease is moderate. In other cities, like Kansas City, in fact, the fall is more pronounced. The Brookings Institution report highlights several trends as to why this is happening. Black people are moving to the suburbs at higher rates than in the past. White people, in some cities at least, are moving back downtown. And overall, big cities are seeing more and more Hispanic residents, which is increasing the diversity of those areas. With these trends in mind, we wanted to ask, what does this mean for schools and kids? To be clear, we don't want to paint an overly rosy picture. The Brookings Report says most Americans still live in neighborhoods that are overwhelmingly racially homogenous. So there is that. And this impacts who goes to your schools. I'm talking to the three teachers here today. Can you, uh, I guess, just start this conversation by characterizing the racial makeups of your schools? Are they pretty uh, racially homogenous? Oh, definitely. We're, uh, where I teach at is about 90 to 95 percent Hispanic. And it's always an eye-opener when I show kids the census data because they, since they live in, a, in mostly Hispanic neighborhoods in Kansas City, and that's all they see, that's their bubble that they live in, um, when I show them the census data that the majority of the country is still indeed white Americans, they're shocked. And they're like, wait, so where are, where are they? Where do they live? Like, well, just not not here, guys. Um, because, again, they, they kind of live within within their own bubble. Yeah, we'll get back to that, that concept of the bubble, Jason. I, I work in a higher socioeconomic school district that is roughly 80 to 90 percent white. Yeah. And that's very, I mean, and we, and I'll, I'll ask in just a second, but you recently moved schools and that was a very different situation extremely, from the school you used to, to, to teach at. Extremely different. I went from a low socioeconomic school that was about 80 to 85 percent black. And Lynn in Chicago, what's the makeup of your school? Um, our school is about 80, maybe close to 85 percent Latino and the rest is African-American, Asian, some Indian, uh, a few uh, white, white Polish. It, it was originally the school for Polish immigrants, so there are a few of them that are still there. So I guess in in, in hearing all three of you, it's I mean, it's all three of you teach at schools that, as you've characterized them, um, dominated by one racial group, eighty to ninety percent or more uh, of the same racial group. This is a common situation in American schools. Like this is this is kind of the norm. Like people go to school with other people that look like them, are, are racially the same as them. And, and Greg, you started to get into it, but I guess just what is the effect of that? What, what do you see as it being the effect on your students? Um, I see this when kids graduate from our high school and they go on to college, and the majority, especially if they go into a four-year university, uh, where all of a sudden they become the minority. And all of a sudden they feel uncomfortable because they're just not used to being in a, in a space where they are not the majority um, and it's it's a difficult um, obstacle to overcome for a lot of our kids because they that this is the first time that they've ever really experienced that um, that just feeling of uncomfortableness that they are not like everybody else. Um, and we've had a number of kids, and, and we're trying to improve the number, but we have a high graduation rate, but our rate of students staying in college uh, is pretty is pretty low, and that's one of the big reasons um, because of that because they're just they're not used to that. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the other issue is just kids have a perception of, of what they expect other people to act like. 
and and I hear this all the time. Well, they they act white or or they act black, you know, and and the opposite from from other other students. Well, they're they're acting Hispanic. They have their schema or conceptions they, 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 of what yeah, racial groups sure. should act. And like. and I and I just imagine that if they come in contact more with other groups on a daily basis, um, they'd have a different schema about that. They they would see a lot more variety and and they wouldn't be as as stereotypical. Yeah, uh, Lynn in Chicago, I, I I noted in the in this Brookings report that Chicago has seen a modest decline in neighborhood segregation, but still among big major cities is one of the most. Uh, racially segregated cities in the country. I think it's top five. It has been that way for for a long time, according to the Brookings Report. I guess just teaching in a city like that, uh, you've had um, a lot of years of experience teaching in Chicago. What what effect does that neighborhood segregation have on um, kids going to school? You know, it's not only affecting kids going to school. It affects, like, where you teach. Uh, Like, there are some neighborhoods that I will not, enter because I know I can't be there after dark fear of some type of racial attack um and our school was once had selective enrollment so they used to test to get in and then the neighborhood started changing so they begged an interim principal could you open your doors we did and a lot of Latino families a lot more moved in and but I think those were some of those were like first uh first time their family was the first time in the U.S. so the focus for those kids were to come here and get jobs so they weren't coming to school they were working missing a lot of schools our school went on probation (laughs) and we had to uh like really it took like two or three years to get off of probation you know uh, low test scores etc so now what they would call a magnet school and some kids get in by lottery but I still there's I think when the freshmen come there, because they're coming from different areas of the city, a lot of them experience extreme culture shock. And uh, I have even suggested they need a different type of freshman orientation because if they hear someone speak another language, sometimes it was like my black kids will say, they're talking about us. I want to fight them. And I said, no one cares about you. Come on. It's not your business. But they're like it's just so convinced that they're trying to do something to them. So they're intimidating. Uh, Jason, you have some interesting reflections, or maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't I, maybe you, I'm going to ask this question. So, this year you moved from a longtime job that you had at a school that was, uh, I guess, if we want to say it, use the term urban school. Um, it's, it was towards the city center of Kansas City, and you have moved to a, a one that is in the Kansas City suburbs. Um, you have noted on past episodes, not necessarily around this exact topic, but there are different uh, patterns in how students behave. And I, I just I, I want your reflections on, on making that move recently in this in the context of this conversation about segregation and, and students maybe not necessarily mm-hmm. interacting with other racial groups that much. And you've had experience now mm-hmm. in, in, in radically different uh, settings. <clears throat> Environments. I, I have actually. Uh, I think to go back to, uh, I'm going to go back to the urban setting uh, first. Uh, I was an honors teacher, and uh, although I worked in a predominantly black school, uh, the makeup of my honors courses were predominantly white, and that was a that was kind of a an ice an eyesore for me, because I knew that there were other kids in the community that had the potential to be included within those in this honors program, and so we spent about three or four years really identifying kids in order to make that kind of cultural shift in order to have more kids of color uh, within the classroom, within the honors program. 
And about four or five years ago, that the switch came where now that course was more predominantly of kids of color than they were predominantly white. Uh, and so there's always been, even though I had a larger setting, the school did not necessarily reflect that of what I taught. And what made that really fascinating to me was that that really engaged in students being able to understand the, the cultural elements of, of each other. And that allowed for a dialogue and discussion in a way that oftentimes I didn't get to have in, in regular courses that, that more fit the demographics in which I was teaching. Uh, and I think one of the key take, takeaways from, from that particular experience were, to Greg's point, those kids who went away to college they had the experience of knowing what it was like to work with kids that were other that were different than themselves, and so when they were able, been in this honors yeah program, been in this yeah. honors program, and so they could they could they had the empathy too because even though uh, the their their socioeconomic levels were very similar to one another, uh, even though they were even though their skin color was different and their mm-hmm. cultural there were cultural differences, they had a, a good understanding and empathy of where each person was coming from. Yeah, and uh, then you. Sh- I just want to say, I just want to say that's exactly like a reflection of my school. The AP, the honors, the IB classes are like all Asian and white, and that they are definitely a minority at our school, but that's what makes up those classes. Yeah, I mean, and that's a that's an issue we've taken up in the past about just the the disproportionate enrollment for for higher level classes and AP courses. Um, Jason, I do want you to just to kind of do the second half of that. So you've moved so now um, to a new school that is mostly white now. The 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 entire school body. I have, and uh, there were I think there are two instances that really came to mind to me. I would say that you know there's a. L- in a, one class, I had more diversity than I had in other classes. Um, but I had one student who, you know, was within the first month who went out and just went out into the hallway and I had a conversation with me. And this was a young black woman. And she said, you know, there's just no one for me to identify with. And, you know, coming from the experience that I had, I was, I was fortunate enough to be able to have conversations about, you know, what my past teaching experience, what my past students were, uh, and really kind of to work you know, to kind of work with the students, therefore, in the classroom to kind of bring, you know, her own identity uh, to the classroom as w- with the other students so that they could have those those conversations. And how did you do that? You know, it's, you know, I, I always start the the week with how was your weekend and I always end the week with how was your week. Uh, and so really feeding off of those conversations about, you know, what what do what do each you know, what actions do the students take throughout the week? You know, what is their home life like? And then bringing that in in order for them to be able to have discussions about comparisons, whether it's around the holidays, whether it's around the weekends, whether it's people working, so that they can kind of see that there is a, a similar, you know, identification with each other. Uh, and then, you know, this semester I have one class that had four, uh, uh, four, four students of color, and we did lab groups in the first the first unit. I let them pick the first activity, and they all went together into a group. And so, the, you know, the, so, yeah, because, you know, again, it's that identification factor. It's yeah. wanting to work with kids who are similar to yourselves. And so then the next day, you know, we were always in the lab. And so then we counted off by fours. And it just so happened that they were pretty much clumped together. And so that forced them to be able to, you know, break out into other groups. And then that causes, then that allows for the other kids to then have interactions and have conversations. Yeah. Uh, Greg or Lynn, do you ever have students come to you uh, voicing similar concerns that, uh, that Jason just related a student saying, like, I don't have anyone I can relate to or, or I don't have someone who looks like me or I don't have enough 
uh, people who I share a cultural affinity with. They probably don't use those terms, <laughs> but um, but do you ever have to deal with students who are feeling those types of anxieties? Yeah, uh, two yeah. two stories. Uh, Greg Lynn, first, and yeah, yeah. Let me, yeah, yeah. So so two yeah. stories I got. One, um, our seniors have to to put together like an action research project as part of their their kind of capstone. And last year, one of the, I mean, and, and always it's, it's in regard to what the school needs to improve, like uh, maybe targeting one, um, one area of concern that, that our school has. And it was interesting that one group actually picked um, the student body diversity as an issue, uh, that we are 90% Hispanic, and, and they picked that as, as an issue. Now, now, part of it might have been just because, like, we want to get better at basketball, and there's that stereotype that, yeah, we want more African-American players. But, Maybe not the best but, motivation. But besides, <laughs> but besides that, like, they, they actually had, like, some, some good ideas that, that if we want to become a better school, we, we do need, you know, not just Hispanics, um, but also other people of color and, and, and white students as well. Um, so the, uh, students at least on some level, do recognize that, that it is, it is a need. Um, the other story I have is more from like the student perspective. And, and that's my personal perspective as, as a, um, a student and being Hispanic and being in a suburban, mostly white school and never really fitting in and not really understanding why. Um, and I remember that clearly that, that it just, it felt like I was always just kind of different in some way and I would not have been able to verbalize that at the time and not really understanding why but just just feeling like yeah, I don't really kind of fit in here you know we've talked about on. this before but you, you, because your mother if I correct me if I'm wrong your mother yeah. is, is is Mexican correct um your name is Greg Brenner though I, yeah. I wonder if that if the, if your name if that if that affected your if, experience at all as a student in a mostly I'm, white yeah I'm, I'm sure because like you can't tell that I'm um Hispanic you know there's the most people are just say, you know, white or, or maybe maybe even Italian or whatever. But um, having myself spent a good chunk of childhood in Mexico, and it's just, it is different. It shapes, it, it, it shapes how you see things. And when you're thrown in into a school with a bunch of kids that don't see things and don't do things in, in a culture that you are used to and that you're comfortable with, it, it does separate you. Um, and so I've, I've lived that. And so I, I, I wonder, as a that. student, how, how did you feel that separation? Or when did you feel that separation the I, most? I wonder. I just, I, if I had to pin it down, just looking at, at how, like, I would act as a kid in Mexico versus how I, like, here in the United States in, in school. And it just, like, it just felt like I was asked to act in, in different ways, just like in terms of just like reading people where, um, and of course in Latino culture, you're very close. Um, you know, you have much less of a, um, like body bubble for, for instance. And, and so it's, it's a lot more in, in some ways informal, um, and just more close. And, and, uh, in school here, it was difficult to kind of navigate that, at least looking back on it. Like at the time I had no clue. Right. But looking back on it, it's like, yeah, you know, that was no wonder that was kind of weird. Uh, Lynn, you said you had some reflections about, um, I guess, talking with students and, and dealing with students who might feel um, anxious, separated, isolated, worried about how they're fitting in. Yeah, I, I think, too, I have to agree that, like, if we have a lab, all the black kids want to be in the same group. So every time we have a lab, I know I have to we have to assign people. Otherwise, they're going to be in the same group. And sometimes it gets too social. They're trying to talk about what's going on with them. So... Yeah, as a science teacher, have to assign a lab. Um, and it's like anything. It's like when we go to, if we take them to the auditorium for uh, assembly, I look and there's like all of them clumped together. And they said, well, we don't have a chance to be around each other often. So now we're taking advantage of it. And at my 
other school where I taught, there was like gang war. And it was like one gang was black, one gang was Latino. So there's always something. So I had students who would refuse to go to class if they were the only black kid in there. So they would just like rather fail and go to summer school. And then because she said, they tell me, well, they're talking Spanish. And I don't know what they're saying. I think they're trying to get me, which could very well have been true at that school. So it's like it's very hard to get them to even to go to class if they're like not enough black kids to be in the classroom. Lynn, I want to ask, how do you navigate that as an educator when, of course, your goal is to, um, I think, bridge divides, at least in part, bridge divides, um, encourage understanding and empathy and, and cross um, uh, cr- cross demographic interaction, but uh, you're facing a situation where literally um, two students of different races might be um, in a gang war with each other. Right. I mean, that was very challenging. I would try to like talk to the teacher of the class or I would just encourage them just really do your best to go. I said, go in. And when the bell rings, get out. You know, that basically sometimes it was that type of survival issue. But unfortunately, it was also at that school, the teachers were racially segregated. And some of them came from the communities. So some of them had gang ties. So it was a very, very difficult situation. But I really did my best to always like have the kid check in with me or actually talk to the counselor, see if you can switch your class if that if if there was evidence of intimidation. So this, that's just something, uh, you know. Well, uh, one final segment before we get to headlines and then kids these days. Even when I was back in college, that's more than a decade ago at this point, sad to say, it was fairly common to sit in a big lecture class and see many, if not most, students sitting in their small, hardback chairs with those weird one-sided folding desks with a laptop balanced in front of them, their faces lit up by blue LED light. Well, the prevalence of laptops in college classes has only increased in the years since I've been in college. Now it's expected in most classes that students will have their own personal computer to enable them to uh, take notes, follow professor's PowerPoint, whatever. Uh, But at what cost? A new study from Michigan State University shows college students with laptops in lecture classes spend up to 40% of class time on the Internet for non-academic reasons. That is, social media, online shopping, reading the news, whatever. Not surprisingly, the research shows that non-academic use of the Internet has a correlation to lower final exam scores. Though this research is focused on college students, there are clear implications for K-12 schools that are rapidly introducing one-to-one technology in classrooms. In many secondary classrooms and even elementary ones, the sight of students sitting at desks on their own laptops is more common now than it was certainly when I was back in college. Now, really, it is the expectation that students will have access to one-to-one technology. So I I wanted to just do a really uh, brief check-in because we talk about technology a lot, and oftentimes our teachers are skeptical of the promises of education tech. But here's how I wanted to frame this discussion. Do the benefits of one-to-one technology in K-12 classrooms outweigh the drawbacks? It's not the issue in Chicago public schools because that's very rare that they have the one-to-one tech. Uh, except for selective enrollment schools, they might have that. But those kids, uh, usually our selective enrollments, like the one by my house, is an IB school. So those kids live, breathe, and eat academics. So it's different. Their mindset is totally different. But, you know, in other high, like in our high school, sometimes you have to like monitor them so closely. The kids get the Wi-Fi, and then the staff can't even get the Wi-Fi from admin. But the kids have the Wi-Fi code, so they're always on internet. But it's, I just think, 
if you have your routine and model it, like my kids are not allowed to have cell phones out and on during my class. And that's a rule from day one. I think I, I have to do that. And then when we use the tech, they know it's for a purpose. So, Oh, well, Lynn, hold, the, hold that thought about not allowing the digital technology into your classroom. I wanted to get uh, Greg and, and Jason to weigh in. Do the benefits of one-to-one technology in K-12 classrooms outweigh the drawbacks? Yes, if it's developed and structured properly. It's uh, a I'm, big caveat. It is. <laughs> the, uh, both schools that I've worked at were one-to-one. And uh, the, my prior school, uh, there wasn't a lot of teacher development in terms of professional development and how to actually use the technology in order to enhance the instruction that was within the classroom. And so the, the laptops became a tool for them to be able to explore and be off-topic. The school that I'm at now, the... The integration of technology started at a very young age, and the platforms that they've used have been consistent all the way through. And, and so what has evolved is this, the utilization of technology in such a way that its purpose has always been centered on an academic environment. And so uh, email, grades... Uh, all the portals are found on one site. So you're saying you're teaching kids who like use one-to-one tech when they were in elementary yeah, school. Yeah, in elementary school. Yeah. And so that's been moving up very slowly. And the school district waited to be able to see what the glitches were going to be before they actually allowed that implementation. Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I have found is that it has altered my whole way of instruction because I have transitioned everything to be online. And so all their notes are online, or note-taking is online, all their labs, the virtual labs are online. Everything is connected through... Um, our, our interface that we use. And so we also have a program that allows us to oversee what they're doing at all times on their laptops. So, you know, nice. if they're doing work time, we could, if they pop up on a website they're not supposed to be, we can actually just write them, a, we can shoot them a message. Or oh, we can close yeah. down that that's, browser. That's cool. Yeah, and yeah. So, so that facilitates our own so you ability. Feel, so, so, so per this Michigan State study, you feel like you actually have a pretty good handle on whether your students are spending their time academically or non-academically on, on their laptop. I do. Yeah. So do you do a flipped classroom then? Do you do the the notes lecture like No, no, I'm I'm still no. I'm old school. Old school. I'm old okay. school, yeah. But I mean all their <laughs> notes are all their notes are guided notes or their mm. or their PowerPoint slides which are uploaded to a program called OneNote which is in Microsoft mm-hmm. which allows them to do all their writing. Mm-hmm. So where I think in in the old days, you know, students had the option to type. Mm-hmm. They actually have a stylus in their hand. They're actually they're actually using it in a way that we use our old notebooks on paper, hmm. and we are writing with our own hands and making that connection. And they're doing that as well uh, as they're going throughout the lesson, yeah. um, which has been really effective. Yeah, Greg, what's your experience? Um, I'd say no, the, the costs do not outweigh the benefits, mainly because of the, the caveat that Jason mentioned, because I just have never seen the structural... Um, implementation go well in in the sense that uh it where we're at in the urban setting a lot of our kids don't or several of our students don't have uh internet at home so there's really no point for them to have a laptop if they can't access uh the things you want you you want them to access at home Uh, Uh, do you do you understand jason's point that uh I, i wonder what your response is to jason's point that he has kids who um, by the time they get to him, they've been using technology in classroom, you yeah. know, since, you know, for like six, eight, 
you know, even 10 years in class before they get to him. So they're, they're used to it. They, they're used to being monitored. They're used to um, having it integrated into their work. And, and you're saying your kids, no, no very opposite. No. Um, and, and just because like the, the Chromebooks are, are crappy Chromebooks, um, they break <laughs> down quite often. So a lot of times um, we might be doing something online and several kids don't have their Chromebook because it, it's, it's down with IT because it's getting fixed or they forgot their charger. Um, and it's just, it's kind of a mess. Honestly, like it, I wouldn't really call it one-to-one it. I mean, we say it's one-to-one, but it's not really one-to-one. We, we'd be better off with just having, um, like computer, like a cart of laptops, uh, in each classroom and then just checking them out. At, during class time. Lynn, your school does not have one-to-one technology. You said earlier that you don't, in fact, allow your kids to have their smartphones out, which I understand. Um, do you want one-to-one technology at your school for your kids? No, not really. I mean, we have the option of uh, checking out a laptop cart, and there are some teachers that use tech almost on a daily basis, and I was wondering, like, when do they ever have a conversation with these kids, you know, because everything, they're all set up, and every day it's like a PowerPoint video, your thoughts, and <laughs> write down your thoughts, not a lot of discussion. But, yeah, so one of my rules, it just got so out of hand because our kids are doing so many inappropriate things, Uh with their technology as it come in my door phones off in your book bag. And that's like, I don't, it's just not even any discussion. And I said, okay. And they sign the syllabus. They know the rules. And after that, it's a Dean issue. I told them it's not anything to do with me. So some of them try to push it, but I think too, in our school, a lot of bullying, has happened in social media. A lot of fights start because of something that happened on social media. And uh, so that's another reason for me to really push this, like, no no tech unless I allow it or unless I say. I still use whiteboard and do interactive things with that, but mostly hands-on and discussion. And so it's just, it's a thing. For, it's also, you know, like I said, a safety thing as well because they're, threatening people on Facebook or whatever and then the next period boom there's a fight in the hallway so they don't know how to use it uh, some of them have used it in elementary school but it's still when you get to high school the environment is different so they use it for something else well the final point I wanted to make before we leave this conversation I feel like what you all three have said this is the digital divide <laughs> at, at work, uh, nakedly in front of us. I mean, Jason's kids, you, you, you're at a, a more affluent school, mostly white kids. You say that they, um, they, they've had like structured use of educational technology for years. By the time they get to you in high school, they know how to use it. They're monitored. It seems effective. But then we have Greg and Lynn. You're teaching at schools that are mostly uh, majority-minority schools or, or uh, m- mostly Latino kids. And there's a lot more problems and a lot more trouble in using educational technology effectively. Right. Well, and I think to, to what Jason was saying earlier, it also depends on what a teacher is using the technology for. If it's, if it's just for writing papers, you know, we could just do that on, with old school pen and, and paper. Um, you know, there's, there's other way. I, it, I get the sense, Jason, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. It, it seems like there was professional development for teachers to actually utilize the technology um, and integrate it really, really well. And for the most part, we have not gotten that. And teachers mostly just use it for looking up things on the Internet and typing papers. Uh, Jason, do you feel like your kids are primed for college? Um, 
Uh, it was a college study that I quoted at the beginning of this. Um, you know, still, once they get to college, kids are using a lot of their time in lecture classes for non-academic reasons. Do you feel like the kids that, that you have taught right now are going to be going down that same path when they get to college? I think it's a hard question for me to answer. It's only been five months for me, and so I haven't really got to see what the what the larger picture is going to be for those kids as they as they move on. Um, I would like to make one point though, is that I think it depends on how you use the technology. So to Greg's point, if you're just doing it for note taking, right, then a pen and paper suffices for the work that has to be done. Uh, we have teachers in the building who who don't believe in one in one and have closed the laptops and are printing out paper copies for everything that they do. Uh, and those are teachers who have been there for two or three or four years or, or longer. And so what I'm interested to see is, will, will my mind change? You know, now that I have this interface and I have these programs and I think I have to do, I think, two, one, four half days and two full days of technology and professional development instruction. Mm -hmm. So four full days of instruction just this year, just to make sure when I, when I walk into the district that I have a good feel of how to, uh, how to use that within the classroom. But will my mind alter? Uh, to see if this technology will be beneficial for them in the future or if maybe I will go back to paper. Because um, I still do all their labs on paper. I still make them write out. We do lab notebooks. And so there's still a lot of the elements of, of, of application, of learning uh, that they'll need in the collegiate level uh, that may not be on a laptop. Before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. In Virginia, researchers found that reported instances of bullying increased more in areas of the state that voted for Donald Trump in the year after the 2016 election. Researchers mapped student reports of bullying onto election results and found that for every 10-point increase in support for Trump, there was an 8-point jump in reported bullying. This jibes with other research as well as anecdotal evidence that suggests a rise, especially in race-based bullying since Trump entered office. The Southern Poverty Law Center coined a phrase to describe this phenomenon, the Trump effect. As of this taping, the partial government shutdown continues with no end in sight. Hundreds of thousands of federal workers are going on three weeks without pay. Now, suburban districts around Washington, D.C. are trying to offer support. Several districts have encouraged families of federal workers affected by the shutdown to apply for schools' free and reduced-price lunch programs, which they may temporarily qualify for. Also, Fairfax County Public Schools in Virginia also sent out information to furloughed workers saying they could possibly make money as substitute teachers. And the nonpartisan Government Accountability Office says potentially millions of American college students are food insecure. That is, they lack reliable access to affordable, nutritious meals. The GAO reports says, oh, sorry. The GAO report says the rising cost of college is forcing many students to frequently go without food and that food insecurity may be contributing to many students' decisions to drop out of college altogether. These are some of the other education-related news stories that caught our eye this week. Coming up, Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which 
may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard here, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Greg, what are your kids into? Well, Kyle, you mentioned how we got slammed with a, a good snowstorm that, that hit this weekend, and it started on, on Friday afternoon. Now, I have a corner classroom, so I have windows on, on two sides of, of my room. Lucky you. So, which, is, which is awesome. <laughs> However, even, even teaching juniors and seniors, they still get squirrely and excited when they see snow coming down. So, you know, we just, I let them watch it. And we talk about it for, for a little bit. You know, what, what are you guys going to do with, you know, f- over the weekend if we get a lot of snow and so on? And we all kind of agreed that um, if, if, you like, if, if you don't like snow, at, at, worst, this is, or at worst, this is just a huge inconvenience, especially that it happens on the weekend. A lot of the kids have to work and have to plow through. It's just, it sucks. Um, at best, it's like winning $5 in the lottery. Because, like, you could have had a, if this had happened, like, on a Monday or Tuesday during the week, we'd definitely have a snow day out of this. So there, there was kind of that sentiment going on. <laughs> probably at, two snow days. Probably like, two, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. right. Um, at the end of the day, um, out in the hallways with, and just chatting with a couple colleagues, the students are, are dismissing, and a gaggle of freshman boys being boisterous. They're just walking down the halls, and it, it, it's all good fun. And my colleague calls out to him, he's like, hey, guys. Guess what? We already called school tomorrow. So no school tomorrow. Uh, it's a snow day, and they were so happy. They were just they, they were just overjoyed for about ten seconds before they realized the joke, um, and that that just that made my afternoon. Uh, it was Saturday. Oh uh, yeah, next day was Saturday. Yes. Okay. Uh, Jason, what are your kids into? I would like to say you're lucky. I have a classroom with no windows, <laughs> so I took my kids to the outside classroom or the outdoor classroom uh-huh. that's covered in glass. And oh, so we nice. just kind of went there and worked for an hour to nice. watch the snow. Uh, YouTube Live and Twitch. So it's a live streaming, multimedia gaming. Uh, yeah, where tw- mm-hmm. Twitch is like you can watch someone play a yeah. game. Yeah, yeah. So my kids have been talking about that. Uh, this week, as we as we went around the room to talk about what our kids into these days. I mean, there are, there are some people who there's some people who go on Twitch and have millions of followers, mm-hmm. make a lot of money playing games on Twitch. Yeah. What are the big uh, What are the big ones that your kids are into right now? Watching. I didn't ask. I didn't know what Twitch. I didn't know what Twitch was. So I was like, "What's Twitch?" And then they had explained it to me, and so yeah, that took. A and so they while. so they can you you mentioned YouTube Live as well, yeah. so they can also just do the same thing. Mm-hmm. They can. They can show people them playing a game so people watch them. It's a different world, man. It's a totally different, different world. world. Uh, Lynn, what are your kids into? Well, they're not into, <laughs> they're really into something different. Uh, my kids are being more, uh, become more uh, curious about their own sexuality, especially in Chicago, how we have like the different bathrooms that are open, you know, for transgender or whatever. And, uh, especially girls tell me things like, oh, boys are so mean. I think I'm going to start dating girls. Or like the, especially a lot of the freshmen come in. I promise you a lot of times I don't know if they're male or female. So uh, because they, you know, because they're dressing and the makeup and everything. So it's really uh, made me like more aware of myself and learn how to address them in a different way and how to just like give them the room and respect and you know because they're just kind of really exploring a lot of things right now 
Well, good luck with that, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Jason Staliga, Lynn Osborne-Simmons in Chicago. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Until next time, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>